visions and tones. Welcome to episode number eight. In this episode, I have a chat with Dr. Penny Kansime, all the way from Uganda. Dr. Penny completed her PhD in social work at the University of Newcastle in Australia, and she has an international master's degree in social work and human rights, which she obtained from the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. And she also has an MPhil in public mental health from Stellenbosch University in South Africa. So much more of this work in this episode actually draws from the years of experience from Dr. Kansimi's work from her PhD, her international master's degree, her MPhil, and the fact that she worked with different people who were actually part of different refugee camps in Uganda. So part of the work in this episode will actually be very sensitive. And I just want to encourage you that, you know, be more extra careful as you listen to this episode and should any of the events, you know, that Dr. Kansi may make reference to in this episode trigger any sort of emotional disturbances, kindly speak to somebody. Do not sit in silence. Speak to your GP, speak to your psychologist if you have one, speak to your spiritual leaders if you're young, underage, speak to your parents so you can get the necessary help. This episode is actually covering issues around gender-based violence and it also covers just more broader work on social work and how social work can be indigenized as per Dr. Kansimi's claims or recommendations from her PhD thesis. Also, just take note that this episode was actually uh, taking place via Zoom, so you may not be familiar with the sound, but I know it is very clear and you're able to hear the conversation. So anywho, thank you for choosing the Visions and Tones podcast and I hope that you enjoy. See you soon. Dr. Kansime, welcome to the Visions and Tones podcast. Thank you. If you can tell us just briefly about yourself, who is Dr. Penina Kansime? Penina, I prefer to be called Penny. Is <laughs> a, a Ugandan. Uh, by nationality, a social worker by profession, a Christian by spiritual beliefs, <laughs> and also a mother of one. Is Dr. Kansime a feminist? Yes, she right. is a feminist. <laughs> that's, 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 that's beautiful. I felt like we need to actually get past that first. And I like <laughs> the fact that Dr. Kansime today, we're actually talking about your work but leaning towards you know the aspect of social work and gender-based violence you know mm. um, and I was just looking a bit at your work um, your thesis there your your PhD thesis in your PhD thesis you actually document voices is this is this voices from social workers who uh, worked with male survivors of conflict related uh, sexual violence in Uganda 
Yes. And somewhere in your MPhil, you actually um, looked at also work, but here you work with different people in refugee camps, but across different countries, such as Uganda, the DRC, Burundi, Somalia, and Rwanda, possibly in many more. Can you can you tell us um, about your your work in general overall? What exactly um, are you specializing in within your line of work as a social work? Um, in relation to the current topic of gender-based violence, uh, uh, be, when I was in Uganda, just before I came to, to Australia for my PhD, I used to work with refugees and asylum seekers, uh, or basically forced migrants. And um, I was working as a gender-based violence officer uh, uh, it was actually sexual and gender-based violation, vi- vi- sexual and gender-based violence stroke prevention officer, and um, I used to work mostly with people that had been sexually violated uh, during conflict because most of the the first migrants that we do have in Uganda are people that uh, have fled war, mm. and. Um, I used to provide uh, counseling. I used to uh, refer them to other service providers. Um, uh, for example, the most the, the hospital because mo- most of them, not all of them, but most of them needed uh, medical attention, and um, it was hard for them to get the help that they needed in the uh, in the public hospitals. So the organization that I worked for was able to get some funding to get um, uh, private health care for them. And then also, of course, refer them to to specialist mental health service providers. Uh, we had a, a, a counseling team at the office, and uh, also deal with other psychosocial issues that um, uh, that they presented to me. And so that is how I got interested in uh, men that had been sexually violated during war. So are you saying you got interested in men who basically studying men who have been sexually violence violated in wars? Yeah. Um, can you can you tell us more in terms of the people that you worked with or you know, not as your from your PhD and not also on your MPhil, but mm. But on the capacity of you being, you know, a gender, you know, uh, officer within and working with people who are within these refugee camps, uh, were they only men or there were also women in those camps? And sort of what age group are we looking at here? I was based in Kampala, the capital city, and I was working mostly with the urban refugees. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also had offices in a few uh, refugee settlements in Uganda. And uh, of course, sometimes I would get a referral from the refugee settlement, uh, but that's one that really needed um, uh, some advanced medical care. So the ones that I worked with uh, were, were uh, both men and women. And uh, they were mostly women, but I also get, we got a very big number of men uh, we, we did. Uh, we used to collect data, and would see that we would see that six out of every ten women that came uh, to to report to to the organization uh, re- reported uh, to have been sexually violated. And then we had three out of ten men, you know, um, saying that they had been sexually violated. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, I worked with both men and women, and uh, they, they 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 came from from various age groups. From we had those as young as as 10 we had men and women as old as 70 or 60 something you know Mm. Uh, yeah because um in in a conflict situation really there's no respect for any kind of of a person whether you're old or young Uh, sexual violence in in war is uh, conducted for various reasons to achieve various means so um it's a weapon it's a weapon, just like how someone has a bullet or a grenade or a bayonet, you know, uh, right. whatever weapons they use. Sexual violence is a weapon and it's a very, very effective weapon. Mm. Was it only sexual violence that actually came out within the people's narratives, the people that you were looking at, or there are also other forms of uh, violence, which can actually be categorized as part of, you know, gender-based uh, uh, violence. Uh, no, it wasn't only the sexual violence. There was the physical violence, but in most cases, the sexual violence goes along with physical violence mm. in such situations. So we separated the um, the the, ref, the the refugees, our clients, into uh, different groups so that we give them um, customized uh, services or responses. And of course, with their permission, we would ask them to choose whatever support groups they would love to identify with. They are those that were comfortable enough to 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 join um, the group of people that had been sexually violated. They are those who only identified as having been only uh, physically you know, assaulted. Mm-hmm. So it's not only sexual violence. Uh, it's also physical violence. It's emotional violence, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me about the, the, the perpetrators in this case uh, towards uh, the men that you actually uh, had conversations with. Are the perpetrators all of them men or there's also other women who actually are capable of being perpetrators of this violence? For the clients that I received, it was mostly the men, but there were also those few cases that identified women among the perpetrators. You know, when we talk about sexual violence in conflict, uh, you have to realize that it's 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 done in 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 various forms. When you talk about sexual violence, most people think about um, the usual, you know, rape, right. mostly. Yeah you know, someone forces someone, you know, a sexual organ to a sexual organ. But when we come to, when it comes to to conflict-related sexual violence, it manifests in many, many forms. Uh, Sometimes, um, and it's about power. It's about Mm -hmm. power and it's about control. So if you find that uh, the perpetrators were, first of all, people from, anyone can be a perpetrator (laughs) because it it, it was some people reported it was civilians people they knew you know when there is war when there is conflict um there is lawlessness so it's easy for people to commit crimes and and get away with it Uh, for most of them it was the people in armed forces that includes the militia or rebel groups as well as the government um the government um 
forces. Uh, mm -hmm. For some, it was humanitarian humanitarian workers that took advantage of them, you know. So yeah, it was mostly men that perpetrated the violence, but there were also women. And uh, how, someone may wonder, how do women do it, you know? Right. Uh, and this is where the different forms come in. Uh, for example, we had people reporting uh, that... Um, uh, the perpetrator would get a stick or uh, um, yes, a baton also the tip of the gun is it the, the bayonet or whatever mm. you know and 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 uh, insert it you know in either a man's anus or a woman's vagina you know so that is also classified as sexual violence because it's it's a, sec a sexual organ that is being violated so a woman uh, may not be able to rape a man but they could do that or they could order them to to sleep with a, a captive or they could order them to 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 def to, to sleep with their daughters in front of them you know, there, there are various ways that they did it, but it was mostly the main. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Kansime, can you talk us through your participants in your thesis? Because it's something that I want to sort of tie up from what you just explained now towards now your work within your PhD. Okay, so the participants in the PhD were mostly social workers that worked mm. with these men. Mm. And, and it's because uh, when I looked, um, uh, first of all, people don't realize that there are many men out there that have been sexually violated, especially in the context where I come from in Uganda, where it is, is we still uh, deeply entrenched in the traditional gender norms, you know, where they know the man is strong, a man cannot be raped. There are people who don't believe that a man can be raped, you know? So I realized that there is no knowledge that has been documented about working with men that had, have been sexually violated. And so I thought it was a good idea to talk to these social workers and, uh, and, and find out from them uh, their experiences, their first encounters, their reactions, did the education that they received prepare them to handle you know, these kinds of cases and also to get uh, knowledge and skills uh, on how to handle men that have been sexually violated. Mm. Yeah. And you, you said something interesting there that you became interested in documenting voices of, you know, people who work with these men. And I know that in other, in other parts of your work, you're actually working with, you know, like you said, apart from your MPhil, but you work very close to people who are actually victims of this sort of um, uh, violence and mostly men. I'm yeah. curious in this because mostly if you come today and you want to document anything that has to do with a male's voice in the context of victimhood um, of a certain form of violence, it, it, it may appear to other people that you are actually silencing the other existing voices or the other work that actually documented experiences of particularly women and children. What does your work mean in the con what does your work mean, especially also as as a feminist? You've actually said earlier on that you are a feminist. What does your work mean in in, in the context of other works? that have been done by the fallists or have been done by other activists, black radical feminists, would you, would, would you, uh, uh, would you say uh, there's a bit of a cancellation of their work or, or it's an addition? What, what do you make out of this? 
Personally, I've, I've had that school of thought. Uh, I've listened to the side of the argument. Uh, they believe that um, standing up to advocate for the male victims or male survivors would cancel the, the, the work that the feminists have done uh, for the women. Um, I, I don't think that's the case. Actually, I think if we also stand up for the men, we are actually uh, boosting the work that the feminists have done uh, for the women. When we talk about gender-based violence, I know most people conflate that term with to mean violence against women, you know. Uh, but if we're to talk about gender-based violence, and this is uh, a question that uh, one of my clients uh, asked us when we were out in the communities trying to get these men to seek for help. When we talked about gender-based violence, they asked whose gender are we talking about, you know, before they started talking about uh, telling us um, uh, what had happened to them. I, I believe that advocating for the men is actually boosting the work of the feminists uh, that uh, they've done over the years to bring this discussion onto the table. Uh, it's not in any way demeaning or undermining their work because for me, my, my brand of feminism is um, is advocating for equal opportunities, you know, equal rights and equal uh, opportunities for men and women. So if we leave this uh, aspect of hurting men behind um, in the fear of uh, compromising what has been done already for the women, I don't think we would be doing the boy child um, a, a service. And if we're looking for a world that is full of equality, then I think we should look at everyone um, I, everyone. The other argument that um, uh, the other school of thought has is that uh, that men are mostly the perpetrators and women are mostly the victims. It's true. The statistics show that. But like I have said, we cannot leave a certain group of people behind just because um, what we believe is the, the gender does the mo most of the of, of the harm. We, we, if we are talking about equality here, then we should we should um, embrace everyone, regardless of whether they are male or female or whatever they may choose to identify themselves as. Right. Mm. I'm, I'm curious, though, you're saying in, in documenting the voices of men, you are actually advancing the works of Black radical feminists. I'm, I'm wondering in, in what sense, especially because you're speaking from the context of uh, feminism as opposed to the context of um, womanism. And I'm saying this because um, uh, feminism, particularly the, 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 the radical, the black radical sort of say, tends to actually emphasize more that they are against, rather they speak more ab ab against sex, you know, sexism, so to say which within the very same sexism, it seems the man becomes the center of who the movement is against in most cases than really advocating even for the man. Whereas as for womanism, you know, you know, the advocacy also for men who remains the greater part of a black woman's life and a black woman's family is actually uh, 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 part of the vision. So, so in what sense, uh, Dr. Kansimi, are you advancing the works of uh, feminists by speaking for the men or documenting the voices of the men? Um, well, if I'm to understand you properly, I am, I'm not advancing the work of um, 
radical, you know, black feminist in that sense. Mm. Uh, because if they see the man as the perpetrator and they don't want anything to do with him, then that's the, their school of thought. They have their own reasons. And if you look at their reasons, mm. uh, you will see that you will see where they're coming from and, and you will understand them. But like I said at the beginning, this is my brand of feminism. You know, I believe in, in equal rights for women, um, you know, opportunities, uh, political, civil, economic, whatever rights they are that a man has, a woman should also have. But my brand of feminism also recognizes that um, there are men that are affected by other men or in, in some cases, a few women. You know, the problem with sexual violence, um, the issue with sexual violence, especially in the, in among the men that I worked with, it's it's more of um, um, an, a negative effect of patriarchy, you know, right. because when these men, um, uh, some of uh, some of the stories that men shared with me were when what there's one who told me um, that, that uh, when this man was uh, abusing, going to abuse him, he said, I want to show you that you are like a woman, you get it. And even the way the community described them after they got wound of their abuse, and usually they do these things as uh, um, uh, acts of public you know, display. They do it so that, you know, it's all about humiliating these men, mm-hmm. humiliating them. So um, that they would, even the men, the way, some of the men, the way they would describe um, their abuse, they would say, oh, he used me as a woman. You know, right. he, he turned me into a woman. So for me, I want to recognize those men as well, not to leave them behind. Because um, if who's going to take care of them? Because if, if, if you're living in a very um, patriarchal society like where I come from, the men won't look out for them because the men believe you are not a complete man if you can be sexually taken advantage of. You get it. So if me as a social worker, my duty is to look at everyone uh, as they come, whether male or female. I'm, I'm trying to, to bridge that gap in social work as well, where we've concentrated so much on the women and the children and forget, forgotten that men too have social issues that need to be dealt with. Right, right. Yeah, so so that's my brand of feminism. <laughs> mm. No, it's, it's, yeah. it's clear, it's clear. When the victim says he used me as a woman mm. i think there's a strong language there which we have to pay a close attention to or unless i am not sort of picking you very well so when they say he used me as a woman do mm-hmm. they particularly mean that um do they particularly mean that they they he abused me or they abused me in a way that a woman should or did they mean that he slept with me uh, as though I'm a woman inserting maybe his organ onto mine, even though on, onto my, 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 my backside as a man or whatnot? Because I'm interested particularly in that language, the fact that sometimes language can, mm. can have a bit of errors such that we are not aware that we can actually... Uh, uh, inflict or paint a certain picture to people mm. that only women have to be treated in this kind of a way, whereas that is not the case. Is it a language error or or indeed even the victims can actually feel like a woman is the one who has to be victimized in that sense as opposed to a man? Like how, what can we say about language? 
it can be both. <laughs> I'm glad you picked it up. I think for me, what I interpreted from that statement was, first of all, uh, the, was that um, how the culture in which he has grown up has made him believe that it's only women that can be raped. Uh-huh. You get it. But they also there's also the aspect of him now feeling de um demasculated emasculated yeah because some of the men actually shared that as a feeling they say you know ever since that thing happened to me i don't feel man enough i feel like a woman because i was used like a woman you know so it speaks to his understanding of what can happen to women mm. and not to men, you know, but it mm. also to speaks uh, to his feelings, you know, of he feels he's not man enough because culture has taught him differently, you know, right. that men cannot experience certain things. So, yes, language is, 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 is important. So, so when, you, when you respond now, you're actually reminding me of the works of Dr. Malosi Langa in South Africa, mm. who actually writes the book, uh, Becoming Men. I think I spoke even about the book from the, in, in, in the previous episode. And I speak about the book in relation to the fact that Dr. Malosi Langa in, uh, introduces us to the concept uh, multi, uh, uh, masculinities rather than just one masculinity. And I think people are actually... Mm used to using the phrase toxic masculinity, right? But we actually, Malosa says we've got masculinities in a sense that he actually speaks about men who sort of advance the behavior that is against toxic masculinity, men who are capable also to speak against any form of abuse towards Mm -hmm. women and children. It could even be against any form of racism, which we know that this man uh, uh, today in society can also be called any sort of derogatory, you know, terms and whatnot, like you're gay or you're whatnot, you're too soft or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Because soft, softness is, attribu- is, uh, is sort of attributed into uh, to, to women, mm. to women, sort of say. Mm. But how do we cross, you know, the point where we teach language? even to the victims so that they do not think that only a certain gender or, or, you know, deserves a certain kind of pain to be, you know, you know, inflicted over them or whatever the case. That's the first question. And the second question, Dr. Kansime, how do we ensure that we educate um, uh, uh, men out there so that they, they actually begin to speak against toxic masculinity? So that the narratives which are and the voices which are actually coming out from Dr. Malos's book can actually grow, not just in South Africa, but in other parts of African continent and other parts of the world. Okay, yeah, those are very interesting questions. I think um, we start where we are. Right. wherever everyone is, whether in the family setting or the workplace. Uh, so for me, in the case of that gentleman, I would start from either the, the, the counseling room. If it's an interview process, it's a, it's a different thing. You, you would want to do that after the interview. But one thing that we, one very good thing that we did in that organization was to come up with these um awareness raising sessions uh, among the victims Mm -hmm. and also among 
in, in the communities, in the community where those refugees were being hosted, mm. uh, whether in the refugee settlements or uh, just where the other Ugandans are, like in the urban centers, even though they tended to concentrate in a few places where they felt comfortable with their, ve- their fellow countrymen, there were also other Ugandans that were living there. So we used to have these uh, GBV awareness raising sessions. And in these sessions, we basically took them to school about what gender-based violence is, starting from the definition, the forms, who can be affected, who can perpetrate. And during this entire process, we uh, we were trying to break down these gender beliefs, you know, these gender constructions of what can happen to a woman or what can happen to a man, and also telling them about the language, you know, and how not to address victims and all those things. So I think um, we only had resources to do it for the refugees or the refugee communities. But I think such campaigns uh, should be taken to a broader level. Um, and and right from from when children are in school, I'm telling you, or in the in their families, uh, we as parents, you know, and I think this is to 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 your second question. Uh, mm. we, we we start at home. I I started with my son. You know, I listen to the language that he's using. Some of some you you know culture culture is dynamic. That's true. It can change, but it takes it takes times to undo cultural practices or cultural mm. beliefs, you yeah. know? So it is it is like a piece of wood that we need to, to chip at, you know, away bit by bit, bit by bit, starting from where we are. Whatever whatever side of the piece of wood you are, start where you are and chip, it, uh, chip at it, you know, little by little. So I've listened to, to, to the language that my son has used in the past. You know, I remember there's a time when he was seven. He came back from school and he said, oh, mommy, me, me and my friends, we don't play, play with girls because girls are like this and girls are like that. I'm like, excuse me, I am a girl. <laughs> of course, I'm a woman, <laughs> but I wanted to give yeah. <laughs> I was trying to, to point something, you know paint a picture here i'm like i'm like i'm a girl does it mean that you won't talk to me or play with me you know and i started mentioning all these favorite uh ladies in his life that um he loves and and i'm saying those two are girls so if you treat those girls at school like that it means you're going to treat us you know like that and that's not that's not right your friends may do it but it's not okay and next time stand up and defend those girls and say it is not okay for us to you know talk to right. girls like this or treat girls like this. So I believe we should start where we are. And in um, uh, we should introduce, even in the curriculum, I mean, we, we've seen all kinds of things being introduced in school curriculums, things that have to do, for example, when we're talking about uh, sexuality, you know, gender and sexuality, I know it's a big thing in this era in many schools. Let us hold these honest discussions, you know, about these gender re- differences, that gender respect. There's still a lot of work to do. We come from, from different families. Uh, we, uh, people get different pictures of how uh, people should be treated according to gender. So I think... Um, common spaces like schools would be a very, very good place to start, you know, to start with, to try and dismantle uh, some of um, uh, this demeaning gender, this demeaning gender language that uh, that, that, that is used uh, by people. I like what you said, Dr. Kansimi. What I found mostly as somewhat, I should, uh, maybe bizarre is not the, the right words to use here, but what mm. I found is rather puzzling is the fact that 
I mean, I sit and I look at uh, my, my home country, um, South Africa, which is actually among one of the highest countries that has gender-based violence um, um, rate in the world. And you hear people actually trying to push the sort of government to sort of use maybe the legislature or to even use police departments to actually be the set, sort of the entities that addresses gender-based violence. And I'm oh. thinking, I like what you said because you're sort of expanding it, that th this is not something that can be, you know, attributed to just one entity. Different people have to be involved in this, you know. Parents yeah. have to be, parents have to be involved in this. And thank you so much because you are actually taking the steps already with your son. And, and you're actually highlighting the fact that schools, the curriculum has to change. And I'm thinking also religion itself, you know, yeah. uh, uh, religion, how religious leaders have to think about, you know, the way in which they sort of try to even incorporate, you know, uh, could be even African beliefs or whatever, if, if it's spirituality beliefs or Christian beliefs themselves, you know, you find some preachers who would even, you know, uh, encourage congregants to sit in a in, a, in an abusive marriage, so to say. Yeah, I know that now we're absolutely. crossing over to something uh, else, but we're trying uh, to actually drill through the idea of, of gender-based violence on different, you know, levels. And I think if we can speak more onto this for, for, for now, as yeah. to how can these different institutions actually and different people and different groups and how should the education be that actually uh, 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 goes out into the people so that we can curb uh, violence, you know, whether it's against women and children or it's against men themselves, but something's gonna be done. You know, preachers, uh -huh. if, preachers who encourage a woman to stay in an abusive marriage, what does that, what, what impacts does that have over the children who grew up watching, you know, mom being beaten up every day or dad being beaten up by mom? What, what does that teach them? You know, it sort of it sort of creates a certain normalization of certain things which are actually bad. That tomorrow the kids can grow up and understanding that you beat up a woman or you beat up a man, and there is nothing wrong with it. That's how you actually yeah. assert power, or whatever yeah. the case. So, if we can speak more into this uh, uh, right now, Dr. Kansimi, how how do we even ensure? Now you you you're speaking about you teaching your child about language. How do we teach the girl child in terms of how she has to understand herself, love herself, and also love the people around, around them and be accountable for whatever they see or whatever they do to the people around them? Yeah, um, um, I agree with you with what you said. Uh, you've pretty much summed it up well. We need to challenge the structures that um, uh, promote uh, this um uh, abuse against against women or disrespect for for other people just because of of, of their gender and uh for the girl child for me it's the same message um uh, for to to you it, it's it's uh, I think it's about uh, telling this girl that the world that we're living in looks like this, but this is not what it's supposed to be. You know, as a girl, you have to believe in yourself that you are created equal, and you have this. You you they, they they you have the capacity to be whatever you want to be. You know, regardless of um of of what society may want to tell you. But why I I, I insist on the structures being dismantled is that we do have structures that uphold 
include these gender inequalities that unfortunately disfavor the women. And sometimes, uh, Tony, women work in these gender structures and they are powerful women up there, but at times they, 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 they promote this abuse, I think, because of a lack of awareness. So if we are to, to raise um, a, a generation that, that respects all genders, we have to, to, to engage more in preventive efforts. Let's not wait for the, for the gender-based violence to happen and, uh, mm. and, and be good at coming up with res response you know, strategies and pouring into money into responses. I think most funding and most, F and most, most of the efforts should be uh, engineered um, towards um, um, prevention prevention of this violence that is changing the attitudes changing people's attitudes um, about uh, gender-based violence and uh, also changing uh, their behaviors pro providing the men abusive men let's for example look at abusive men or abusive women uh, you mm -hmm. know have have programs that uh, you know take them through uh, the kind of behavior to try and see uh, for, for them to understand that what they're doing is wrong I've, I've read a paper I don't remember by who about um, this person was interviewing men that um, were uh, that were perpetrators of domestic violence and asking them for the reason as to why they do it. It's amazing, you know. Uh, some of the reasons they gave, uh, some of them were like, "Oh, I, I because I want to control the finances, or because I want to get sex whenever I need it, uh, or like, oh, well, because they are women, you know." They they don't know any better. And right. and for and for me it's it's education. It's education. Education is that is, is a very powerful tool that I think will, will get us uh, where 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 we want to go. But also the structures to challenge them, to challenge them, regardless of whether you are a man or a or a woman, you know. Uh, it is um, in, 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 in so many countries, unfortunately, it's men that uh, wield the most power or are in powerful positions. And uh, for some of them, it's the women that are usually number two or number three. And the, the decisions come from the men and say, oh, we should do this. But, but when you see that the decisions that, that, that they are making are, are, are very oppressive towards women, it, it's, it's time for those women to stand up and challenge challenge these things instead of going with the status quo just because we're up there and we build some kind of power. I think everyone, wherever they are, whether they are men or female, they need to, to, to be able to challenge these, these unequal gender relations. And for the girl child to know that these are just socially constructed conditions that are being placed on them as a girl child, but they have this inherent value of, uh, of being human. And because by virtue of that, they can be whatever they want and you know they, they can challenge they can challenge they can stand up for themselves they can fight against this oppression i want to echo chimamanda somewhere and then uh, put on uh, maybe a question about certain things uh um chimamanda in, in in her talk we should all be feminists said something very interesting which i think it aligns with what you said about you know the value of a girl child uh, she actually problematized the fact that we raise children, I mean, we raise the girl child um, um, in a sense that we sort of insert within their brains the idea that they have to, you know, to impress a man. Mm -hmm. You know, say things such as you can be educated, but, but not too educated because you will 
you know, scare. chase the men away mm-hmm. or you scare the men mm-hmm. away. We, te- we, we, we teach, you know, the girl child, we, we raise them such that they, they, they see themselves as being fit for marriage. Well, you know, and I, and I wonder when is this thing going to change, Dr. Kansime, that we see a girl child and whenever we see a girl child, we see a, 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 a bright prize, so to say, you know, and if you can talk to us, the impact of culture also, because part of the domestic violence, especially in the context where people are married back in, in most parts of African, you know, uh, cultures or whatnot, there is this entitlement that I've had, you know, many people actually talking about and problematizing the fact that I paid a bright price, therefore I can do anything that I want into a mm-hmm. woman's body. Mm-hmm. You know, those kind of things. How do we change that? But I'm thinking by changing it, I'm talking necessarily that we do away with this sort of backwards kind of thinking. And by changing it, I'm not saying, therefore, let us cancel culture, our, our traditions entirely and begin to adopt the Western ways of thinking. But how can we practice culture in a sense that it becomes a beautiful thing and it still, you know, remains a powerful weapon and a powerful reflection of our identity, but it does not, you know, uh, uh, perpetuate, you know, this kind of, you know, bad thinking and violent kind of thinking, entitlement, so to say. How, how can we embrace culture? Mm. Um, number one for me is it, it's education, really. Mm. Educating people. But number two, that education cannot, you, you just can't come in as an outsider and say, oh, guys, you don't know anything. I'm here to teach you, you know. But the best way to approach that kind of education is to work with the people and especially the leaders, the cultural leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen it work in so many programs uh, back home, um, whereby a, 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 a program or an intervention that is, you know, is is really necessary for that for the people in that area or is needed, is gonna fail. Not because it's a bad intervention, but because um, you've not gone through the right channels, you know. Mm-hmm. So, in that case, we have gone to the cultural leaders, not even the political leaders, but the cultural leaders, where I come from, those people still wield a lot of power, a lot of power. They may be ceremonial leaders, like the country where I come from. Like, for example, the, I will give you an example of the Baganda, the, the, the largest tribe in Uganda. They love and revere their king so much. Whatever the king says, they say, you know, the king has spoken, you know, so for those kind of, but if Museveni says something, they don't want to know. <laughs> you get, <laughs> I'm telling you, true story. Now, this is, this is to give you an example, <laughs> you know, so it is, um, it is seeking audience with those leaders. Right. True. And uh, saying, we be, this is a cultural practice, but it is having this kind of effect on, on these people, especially the girl child. And I think it needs to depend. You know, you state your case with them and get their approval and work with them and and work with them in a way that um, you let them spearhead or give them go ahead or speak about it. You know, you create change. There are so many things that have changed in my lifetime, you know, culturally. Uh, just because of the influence of, of the traditional leaders. So when it comes to culture, 
especially where there's still cultural leaders. I'm telling you, work with those cultural leaders. Mm. It, it will go a long way in, in, in helping uh, to try and, and, um, and, and speed up the change that we want to see when it comes to, to equal rights uh, for, for, for the women and the girls. And uh, this bride uh, price thing, it's, it's, it's a cultural attitude that needs to change. I know that originally, when I look when I study the cultures uh, of the country where I come from, originally bright plus bright price was not meant to be what it has turned out to be these right. days. You yes. know, like you're buying off someone's daughter as property and everything. But because marriage has been commercialized these days, uh, both uh, by the girls' parents, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and and the larger section of society, men now feel entitled. You know. Uh, they feel entitled of, oh, I paid this number of cows, I did this, so you belong to me, your, your property. I think women need to be taught their value. And parents also need to understand that their daughters are not up for sale. True, <laughs> you true. know, you cannot use them as butter trade. Surely, how do you exchange a human being for a few miserable heads of cattle, you know? Mm. I don't know, regardless of what they give them in in, in XA, I'm talking in terms of cows because the tribe I come from is a cattle-keeping tribe. So if you are to speak in terms of dairy, you have to speak in terms of cows, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's the thing. uh, For me, uh, my culture is different, you know. Uh, In as much as they ask you for a lot of cows, that does not mean that you're going to take someone's daughter and treat them the way they want because you give away cows. We also own cows, you know, so people are are not really poor. This is just a cultural ceremonial thing. So people, um, parents, I think, need to learn the the value of their children and understand that um, uh, the the children that we are raising are not children that are to be given away, you know, as, um, as as in marriage, as uh, uh, as at, at some point, people society should stop placing demands on women. You know, you mentioned an issue where you said, "Oh, as a woman," Chimamanda said, "As a woman, don't be do too educated. If you're too educated, you know, you scared a man away." Mm. She she was speaking to me. I have encountered it, Tony. I've had people tell me, even my own family, you know, or you know now you've started for a PhD, which man is going to marry you? I'm saying if a man is scared of marrying me because I'm a PhD, then he doesn't deserve me, you know? Precisely to my response, because she said if a man <laughs> is going to be intimidated by me, then it is that particular man that I don't want. Exactly, because wh- how am I going to deal with, to deal with your... I mean, you can't be live the rest of your life massaging someone's ego because you have, you know, <laughs> you're mm-hmm. more academically mm-hmm. qualified than them. Because and these are men who don't understand that there's a difference between academic qualifications and marriage. You know, mm-hmm. but the fact that a woman has a PhD does not mean that they are going to step all over their husbands. How many husbands step all over their wives because they have PhDs? At the end of the day, it's not about someone's qualifications. It's about someone's character and how they were brought up. We have men in the villages, you know, drunkards, men who probably didn't even go past primary school level that still harass their women and trample all over their women, you know. Mm. And those women, some of those women stay in those abusive marriages. Why? Because society has told them it is a shame for a woman to be divorced, you know. Mm. If a marriage breaks down, it's a woman's fault. 
You know, th- those are some of, of, of the attitudes and beliefs that we have to uh, to undo in society. And honestly, for me, education is the way to go about it. But education, education that is, is spearheaded by the cultural leaders, you know, that culture that uh, people so esteem and values. Because in Uganda, when you talk about these things, they'll say, but, you know, our culture does this. You know, our culture says this. Meaning that uh, me as an uh, as a social worker, they won't listen to my research findings. But if I share these research findings with the cultural leader and the cultural leader gives that message, they will listen to him. You know, we have to respect and recognize yeah. that authority and work mm. with that authority in order to change these attitudes. Are you saying education from the context of African indigenous knowledge and the Western sort of knowledge systems should find a way to reconcile with one another. Is, is that what you're saying here? Because I'm trying to think when you say we have to work with the traditional healers, um, um, what leaders. exactly, sorry, traditional leaders, <laughs> what exactly are we saying to these traditional leaders? Are we saying they need to cut out culture completely or are we saying to them, here's other methods that you need to learn? I'm trying to think on how we can be careful in such a way that we don't appear the same way as colonizer who said you are primitive and colonizer who came with the intent to wipe out everything about our identity, even about our knowledges that were actually not harmful, so to say, our songs and our and our food and our dressing and our and our whatnot. How do we how do we confront the traditional he- leaders, the leaders in the sense that our intent here? is not to actually destroy culture, particularly, uh, Afri- you know, indigenous knowledge systems or indigenous knowledge, but it is to actually uh, create a safe space for everyone, even in the presence of the very same Western culture that came as a threat and came as an epistemicide kind of a knowledge that was intending to destroy who we are. I think uh, we should do it respectfully in a respectful manner. Uh, first of all, sitting down with them and understanding um, the, the, the history of those cultural practices. We're not doing away with the whole culture in its entirety. You know, like we go and say, oh, we're taking away the Baganda culture just because there are some customary, you know, cultural practices that we don't agree with it. With That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about are those harmful cultural practices, you know, that uh, perpetuate um, violence against women, you know, uh, so we do it in a respectful manner. First of all, to understand where this, uh, these cultural practices come from and what they believe the benefits are. And then we state our case using evidence. For example, I'll, I'll tell you, we have a tribe in, um, in Uganda that circumcises women. So to right. the Westerner, it's female genital mutilation. To that Sabine woman, because they call the Sabine people, it's 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 a it's a mark of womanhood. It's culture. It's tradition. Mm-hmm. So if I go to that community with an an aggressive tone, uh, with all my feminist human rights everything, chances mm-hmm. are they will build a wall between um, me and them. But if I go through their elders and show them the negative effects of female genital mutilation, maybe we can have a proper discussion and it can lead to change. So that's why I'm saying we can do it respectfully. We're not doing away with the entire culture. We just we're just looking for those 
harmful traditional at attitudes, practices, you know, beliefs, you know, and um, uh, we, we can't because I mean, even the Western culture that uh, many people do despise uh, is, is, is not the way it was so many years ago. There's some things that they did that they realized along the way, thanks to the work of, for example, the feminists, that this is actually harmful to, to some people. So it took a lot of dialogue. It took a lot of advocacy, you know, uh, for, for them to create change. And change had took years. For some things, have, uh, the change hasn't even happened, but people are still fighting. So we, we give them time. Uh, but we speak to them. We hold um, discussions with them in a respectful manner, understanding their perspective and at the same time trying to make them understand where we come from when we say that such uh, traditions are harmful to a certain group of people. And I think uh, things can be done in a better way. In your work, particularly in your thesis, Dr. Kansime, we're going to wrap now. You're talking yeah. about social work having to be indigenized, which mm. some people would say particularly decolonized. Can you can you explain that to us in light with everything, the work that you've been doing, what is wrong with the current style of social work and the way it's been taught and the way in which it has been practiced and how can we then bring it to a decolonial kind of a frame? Okay. Well, indigenizing social work and decolonizing social work are slightly different. Okay. You know? uh, so with indigenization, uh, there's a school of thought that says that indigenization means we should drop everything Western and go back to our ways. Mm. You know, the traditional ways of the people that we're working with. Now, decolonization is saying let's remove those harmful colonial practices and keep the good ones, you know? Um, uh, keep the good practices and, um, you know, provide services to the people. So what um, we are saying is that with decolonization, we're saying that not everything that the West has taught us is right. works, works for our people. Mm. You get it. There are some the methodologies or uh, uh, interventions that can't work for the men in Uganda. One, I, the social workers don't have the skills to do it. You know what kind of interventions are those? Uh, for example, it may be the different kinds of therapy. Mm. You know, uh, for example, if you talk about like, um, is it equine therapy? You know, with the horses. Mm. Where do you find horses in Uganda? <laughs> you can use a chicken. You cannot use a chicken. <laughs> A chicken is different from a horse. Right. You know, there are there are horses in Uganda, but how many of them? You yeah. Know? Yeah. So there are those good interventions, like they are really good, but they can work in certain contexts. One, because the people in Uganda don't have the skills. Secondly, they don't even have the resources for them. Mm. Or they are simply a cultural mismatch. Okay. You get it. So we're saying that... Um, what, do you, what do you mean by cultural mismatch? Uh, what they're advocating clashes with the culture of the people that are receiving mm -hmm. the intervention. Mm -hmm. So they may not be received in the correct way. Right. Yeah. So we, we're saying that uh, let us localize, you know, let us localize, localize social work practices. There are some things that work for my people, mm -hmm. 
that social work believes they don't belong to social work. Because Because the colonial social work wants to make uh, uh, the practice homogeneous, like it's it should be the same social work everywhere. But people are not the same everywhere. Mm. For example, we are very spiritual people. You get it? We are very spiritual people. We love going to church. We believe that uh, many of life's problems are probably because we're not in a good relationship with God. Mm. I mean, the clients that I worked with were very religious people. And, and 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 apart even from being religious, some of them were very traditional and cultural. I'll give you an example. One one client gave me a story. She worked with a man who had been raped, and um, they did everything social work possible to put this guy back on track. They took him for medical care. They provided psychosocial help. They provided counseling. They took care of, uh, you know, try to get him a job, you know, try to restore him to normal functioning. But every time the man will come and say, but I don't feel okay. No, yeah, we've done all this. And you know, and you as a social worker, you want to terminate this relationship at some point. Mm. You know, you've done everything. The man looks physically okay, but he's telling you, I'm not fine. And then when she dug deep, deep, deep down, he said, you see, for me, because this happened, I believe I will not be okay unless I go through a cultural rinsing ceremony. So now the social worker had to go and look for the cultural leaders and they organized for, for, for a cleansing ceremony for this man. And it is until he had that ceremony that he said, now I am okay. But the Western social work does not recognize that aspect. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, if that man was in this context, they would be pumping him with all kinds of pills. Mm. You get it. They would say, oh, it's a, it's a psychological thing. Oh, it's a mental health thing. Oh, it's a men-, you know. But yet, yet for him, he told you that's not the issue. Unless I am culturally clean, I feel I'm not clean. I feel I'm not dirty. And, you know, because he's so deeply rooted in his culture, this is the only thing that would provide him relief after he got all this kind of help that that he needed so that's what i'm advocating for that let us recognize the peculiar needs of the people that we work with mm-hmm. let us um appreciate the context in which we are working you know if someone says i need religious help i mean we even had contacts of spiritual leaders in my organizations religious mm-hmm. leaders that- what about those who want to see a traditional hero it is their right I mean, the cultural cleansing ceremony had traditional healers. Traditional healers, yeah. Yes. Yes. So for me as a social worker, I may not believe in some practices of traditional, you know, uh, healing and all those things. But if if that is what my client believes and it's going to make him better, he has my blessing. Dr. Kansime, let's close with this. Thank you so much. Um, You're welcome. I made a submission before that we need to expand the definition of gender-based violence mm. and borrowing also from the works of Dr. Malusilanga and other people um, elsewhere. And I was almost under fire because of that kind of a view. Mm. Now I'm going to ask you, um, would you say we do need to expand the definition of gender-based violence? And if so, or not so, why? 
the international concept in some of uh, the instruments, uh, for example, it has already been expanded to mean not, um, because initially they would talk about gender-based violence and then in the same sentence they would say violence against women. But we see that in some instruments they've actually uh, removed the women, uh, they've, onto the women they've added women, you know, men, boys and girls. So gender has been expanded to, to mean a violence, uh, you know, um, an attack on someone, gender-based violence has been expanded to mean an attack on someone just because of their gender, you know, regardless of whether it's male, female, um, or, or, or what the other person thinks their gender is. So it has already been expanded. Uh, it's, it's still... Um, um, in a narrow space among a few people who still believe that um, GVB is basically only about the women and so it should stay like that. Some radical feminists don't want it expanded, uh, like they said, because they think it's undo like you noted, it's undoing the work that they've done over the years to to put this topic on the table, to advocate for the women. And also it brings about a competition in resources uh, whereby resources are being taken away from, from the women, especially and the children are being taken to the men. And yet it's the women that are inadvertently uh, being affected by, uh, by gender-based violence. So it's, it's a discussion that is ongoing. And honestly, I don't know uh, when it will end, but what I have seen is that um, how it is received, it depends on the context and what the aims of, uh, of, of, of those people are. Any closing remarks? Because that wasn't necessarily the closing remark. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, so um, I would close with this. Um, in as much as I work with, um, I have, um, I'm passionate about researching uh, um, violence against men. It is true, um, I have seen it uh, in my research experience. I've also seen it um, in the statistics and also in my, my personal relationships uh, that uh, gender-based violence inadvertently affects women. Uh, women are the majority of, of, of the victims. I mean, when you look at the UN statistics, you see that two, over 240 women, million women, across the, the globe have, have experienced, uh, you know, gender-based violence. In Australia alone, one woman is killed every week due to gender-based violence. One woman, you know. So violence against women, uh, gender-based violence affects women the most. And the thing that will... Uh, will change that is the attitudes. The attitudes need to change uh, right from home uh, to the religious uh, uh, affiliations uh, to, to the schools where we go to or the places where we work. We have to speak up and change, challenge the attitudes that demean women, challenge the attitudes that, um, uh, that dismiss violence against women. Tony, if you're with your friends and they make a demeaning remark about the way, about a woman, that is a good opportunity for you to lovingly call them out and correct that. Trust me, <laughs> you know? I've been under fire for that. Most of my <laughs> friends know me very well. Some of them almost call me a woman. Like, I don't play because, hey, I don't want my children to grow up and come across, you know, this same kind of mentality that, you know, a woman can be spoken bad. I mean, I, I, I've been raised by beautiful 
women, women. Is, not yeah. women they are women is, <laughs> so to say yeah. yeah so like i said it's like one big piece of wood that needs uh, you know to be cut but we, we we just need to chip away from whatever angle wherever you are positioned please let let's challenge these attitudes these attitudes that demean women and perpetuate you know uh, gender discrimination mm. yeah that's about it Thank That's you so much, ma'am. And yeah, I wish you all the best with your future endeavors. Dr. Penina Kansimi. Penny, you don't like to be called Penny. Dr. Penny Kansimi. Have a good night. You too, Tony. Have a good night. <laughs>